0: Hello my friends, and welcome to another sermon in our series titled, Choose Your Religion. My name is Dan Forrest, and today we will be looking at Islam. This is episode 5. I have to admit I don't feel super qualified to be discussing Islam because I've actually had limited engagement with Muslims, and I haven't spent a lot of time studying their religion, but I will share with you what I have learned and what I've also experienced. Before we begin, we're going to watch a little clip from the movie The Big Sick, which is loosely based on the real-life romance between comedian Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon. Kumail, he comes from a a Pakistani Muslim background and Emily is your typical white American. In this movie, it follows this inter-ethnic couple who must deal with their cultural differences together and also with each other's parents who also come from different cultures. And this is all exacerbated after Emily becomes ill. So in this clip, Kumail and Emily's parents awkwardly try to have small talk in the hospital while Emily is in a coma. Let's watch. So, uh, 9-11. No, I mean, I've always wanted to have a conversation with, about it, with, People, You've never talked to people about 9-11? No, what's your... what's your stance? What's my stance on 9-11? Oh, um... Anti. It was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. Huh? That was a joke, obviously. 9-11 was a terrible tragedy. That's not funny to joke about it. Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, please report to the ICU. Mr. and Mrs. Gardner. All right, Go on to the ICU, thank you. Hey, can I come? No. Yeah. Well, that was really awkward, okay. Well, last week was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and America is still having some difficulties understanding and relating to the Muslim faith as a result of that tragedy. When we hear the word Muslim or Islam, in North America at least, we tend to think of Arabs and terrorists and the conflict in the Middle East and what's going on in Afghanistan right now. But these are bad assumptions because Arab is a race while Islam is a religion. And not all Arabs are Muslim. And like we see in this picture, with these, these people are all Muslims and most Muslims are actually not Arab. Arabs make up about only 13% of the Muslim population worldwide. And the majority of Muslims, they don't want war. They want peace on earth. Well, Islam is the world's second largest religion. It's about uh, uh, one-fifth of the world is Muslim. And the word Islam means submission. And that is the core of their faith. Complete submission to the will of the one true God. Muslims typically refer to God as Allah, which is the Arabic word for God, and the word Muslim is derived from the word Islam and means submitter. Well, Jonathan has been asking the same questions of each religion in this series, and before I get into those, let's dive right into a brief history of Islam. Islam started in the early 7th century in Mecca and Medina, when as tradition goes, the angel Gabriel visited Muhammad with the divine message of submission to God. And for the next 23 years, he he continued to receive revelations until the message was complete and later compiled into the Quran. These revelations caused him to proclaim a strict monotheistic faith that there is only one God, as the final revelation in the tradition of Judaism and Christianity. Muhammad is therefore seen as the final prophet after such great prophets as Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus. Uh, Muhammad also warned of the impending Judgment Day, and he condemned social injustices that were happening in the city. Muhammad gained a number of followers, but he was met with increasing opposition from leaders in Mecca. And in 622, a few years after losing protection with the death of his influential uncle, Abu Talib, Muhammad migrated to the city of Yathrib, which would later become known as Medina, where he was joined by his followers. And it's at this point that uh, history has looked back at this time as the start of the Islamic age and the beginning of the Muslim calendar. In Yathrib, uh, Muhammad began to lay the foundations of this new Islamic society with the Quran providing guidance on matters of law and religious observance. With different political and military conflicts happening in the area, Muhammad was able to gain power, and he secured control of Mecca. In the time remaining until his death in 632, tribal chiefs from other areas entered into various agreements with him, some under terms of alliance, others acknowledging his prophethood, and agreeing to follow Islamic practices. Well, after Muhammad died, Islam began to spread rapidly. A series of leaders known as caliphs became successors to Muhammad, and this system of leadership, which was run by a Muslim leader, became known as a caliphate. But there were actually some who didn't agree with the original caliphate, and Islam split into two groups, the Sunni and the Shiite. During the reign of the first four caliphs, Arab Muslims conquered large regions in the Middle East, including Syria, Palestine, Iran, and Iraq, and Islam also spread throughout areas of Europe, Africa, and Asia. The caliphate system lasted for centuries, and eventually it evolved into the Ottoman Empire, which controlled large regions in the Middle East from about 1517 until 1917, when World War I ended the Ottoman reign. So I was saying there were Sunnis and Shiites. Sunnis make up nearly 90% of Muslims worldwide today. They're the more conservative group. But still, there's the Shiite Muslims, 10%. They're more liberal, and they have a considerable presence in places like Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Okay, so that is a very brief history of Islam. Now let's get to the questions. What is the problem with the world today, according to Islam, metaphysically, and why is it happening? So, even though Islam sees itself as the successor to Judaism and Christianity, they actually have quite different worldviews. Jews and Christians believe that sin is the grand problem of the, with the world, but Muslims believe ignorance is our problem. We are separated from God because God is so much bigger and distant from us, and we are small, we are weak, we are ignorant. For Muslims, the reason Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden was because they actually forgot the command he gave them. It's because of their weakness that they fell. And Muslims also don't believe Adam and Eve passed on a sinful nature to their offspring. They believe that we're all essentially good and pure people. And we do sin, obviously, but we have a natural ability to not sin and to do good. But our problem really is ignorance. We don't always know what is good or how to do good so the second question what is the existential and metaphysical narrative once again even though islam has its roots in judaism and christianity there are major differences in the grand story of existence while muslims respect and revere the torah the psalms and the gospels they believe that parts of that story either got lost or corrupted over time and because the problem with humanity is ignorance God sent prophets throughout history like Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus to provide guidance and revelation so that we would know how to live rightly. And because sin is not the problem, there was no need for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. So Muslims believe that Jesus actually didn't die on a cross. He escaped the plot to kill him and he was eventually taken to be with God. Also in Islam, Jesus is revered as a great prophet, but not as God or even as the Son of God. So, in the meta narrative of Islam, there is no Trinity, there's just simply the one true God, Allah. And there was no need for an atoning sacrifice from Jesus because God can forgive people whenever He wants. He doesn't need a sacrifice for that. So clearly, Muslims believe the messages and revelations of Jesus and the Jewish prophets before him were corrupted over time. And that's why God sent the angel Gabriel to Muhammad to be the final prophet and give the clearest revelation to humanity. And one of the revelations that he gave Muhammad was the impending day of judgment, where God will resurrect everyone into new bodies, which is the same as Judaism and Christianity. We also believe that as well. But in this case, uh, God is going to hold people accountable for their actions in this world, which once again is similar to Christianity. But in Christianity, Jesus is the one who is really judged and we're judged based on our relationship to Jesus. But for Islam, it's different. Let me get into that. So where are we all headed without the mentioned religion? Where should we be going? So in Islam, because everyone will be compensated for their actions in this world on their own individual actions without any influence from other people, those who did more evil deeds than good will likely be punished in hell. But it's actually possible that God will forgive them. It's up to God as the judge to decide. And hell is a place of physical and spiritual suffering. Those who did more good deeds than bad will enter paradise. Paradise is described as a garden of everlasting bliss, a home of peace, a bountiful oasis. In paradise, there will be no sickness, pain, or sadness. It contains never-ending food, drinks, palaces, and companionship, and it is a place of happiness and nearness to God. Muslims believe that Allah is forgiving, merciful, and compassionate, so not all bad actions will be punished. Allah will forgive those who have repented for their sins and those who have done some good in their lives. So once again, this is quite a bit different than Christianity, where Christianity believes that we're saved by um, faith in Jesus and by the grace of Jesus and by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Muslims believe that we are saved based on our actions here on earth. Whether we did more good than bad, that will lead us to paradise. If we did more bad than good, then that will lead us to hell. Okay, so then, how do we get to paradise? Well, the way to to paradise is to follow the revelations given by the prophets, especially the final ones given to Muhammad. And the five pillars of Islam are fundamental practices and acts of worship of Islam that all Muslims everywhere follow. uh, Sunni, Shiite, all the different sects, they all follow the five pillars. Uh, The first pillar is testimony, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Arabic names here. So the first one is testimony. Every Muslim declares there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So that's their first declaration that this this is the truth. The second pillar is prayer, which is offered five times a day to maintain a spiritual connection with God and remind them of their ultimate purpose in life. And this prayer includes physical motions of bowing and prostrating, all while individuals face towards Mecca. And there's no exceptions for this. Everybody has to pray five times a day. The third pillar is charity or almsgiving. And this is an annual charity given to the poor. Muslims must give roughly 2.5% of their yearly savings to help the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. Uh, Charity is one of the vital sources of social welfare welfare in Islam, encouraging a just society where everyone's basic needs are provided for. And the fourth pillar is fasting. Muslims fast during the month of Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the Muslim lunar calendar. They refrain from eating, drinking, and sexual interaction from dawn to sunset. It's an act of self restraint and spiritual cleansing. That increases one's empathy for the less fortunate and enables one to con- consciously control bad habits such as foul language idle talk and anger fasting also helps people develop strong willpower as they overcome the essential desires of their body and the damaging acts of their tongue okay the fifth pillar is pilgrimage the pilgrimage to mecca which is the holy site where all of this started is an act that every Muslim must perform once in their life if they are physically and financially able. And this symbolizes the unity of humankind as Muslims from every race and every nationality assemble together in equality to worship the one true God. So those are the five pillars. This is a good foundation for any Muslim trying to get into paradise. And on top of that is Sharia law and the other revelations in the Quran, which leads us to the next question. What guides our moral and ethical compass to get there? Well, Muslims believe that the Quran is literally God's speech. Unlike the Bible, which Christians believe was written as a mix of human writing and divine inspiration, Muhammad is not seen as the originator of the words of the Quran. He was merely the recipient and the messenger who conveyed conveyed these revelations to humanity. So it's like God was speaking directly to Muhammad and he just wrote it down. Uh, He didn't come up with any of these words on his own. According to tradition, it's all directly from the mouth of God to the pen of Muhammad. So the revelations of the Quran are guides to us to free us from our ignorance and to set us on the right path to paradise. The Quran, along with other teachings of Muhammad and scholarly consensus in Islam, give us what I've already talked about, Sharia law. And Sharia acts as a code for living that all Muslims should adhere to, including things like the five pillars, which we talked about, and also things like guidance in regards to family law, finance, business, daily life, all these things uh, Sharia law tells us how to live. And its aim is to help Muslims live in accordance with God's will for every aspect of their lives. And just like our legal system here in North America has many interpretations, the same is true for Sharia. Interpretations may differ, but this flexibility is actually allowed in Islam so that it can remain applicable throughout time. So it requires people to work together, to interpret, to come to consensus and pass judgments and, and uh, uh, work through the laws together. Okay, so now on to the final question after we've gone through all of these things because we're a church. How does what we've just learned about this religion inform our Christian faith and our faith in Jesus? Well, I find it fascinating that uh, religion claiming to be a successor to Christianity is so wildly different. Islam has way more in common with Judaism than Christianity. I could totally see this as a Judaism to Islam type of thing because it seems like they just jump over Christianity and many of Christianity's core principles because in Judaism there's there is a detailed legal system with clear commands to inform the Israelites what to do and what not to do in order to in order to live their lives pleasing and holy to God which is essentially what Islam is doing with Sharia law they're trying to um, God is passing down these laws for us to follow But it's so fascinating because Jesus' life and his teaching in the New Testament, it transcended Jewish law, especially for us Gentiles. Instead of passing on the same laws or adding more laws onto it, it was like Jesus swept all the Jewish law books off of the table and said, Now you deal with me. No law books with me. You follow me now. You have a relationship with me now. It's like, remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the rest of the New Testament affirms this, especially as we saw in our series in Romans. You know, the commands to get circumcised, to not eat pork, to not observe all the Jewish festivals, those aren't applicable anymore because essentially Jesus wiped them off the table and says, "Now you deal with me. you don't have to do those things anymore. And then the New Testament is also clear that the law of Moses was powerless, To help us follow the law and therefore we needed more than just laws and so jesus clearly didn't establish a world government or a new legal system that wasn't his plan but instead jesus wrote the law of god on our hearts and gave us the holy spirit to empower us to follow god's will but for some reason islam ignores all the key teachings of jesus in this regard and goes back to the Jewish way of doing things by establishing a legal system and a new form of government. And remember how I was saying in my sermon on Catholicism last week, that when the church was mixed with politics, it was a really problematic relationship. And Christianity has, for the most part, learned from those mistakes and is largely separated from politics now, as I believe Jesus intended. Sure, Christians engage in politics and they, they work to pass laws. There's Christians that are politicians and lawyers. but um, these Christians aren't working to, to make the Christians oh, sorry, to make the law all Christian. You know they embrace other religions and they embrace the faith of other people. We're all working together. Um, they're not trying to work for a fully Christian nation. but that's actually the direction that Islam is going at its core. Islam is a political movement. It's it's a new government and with Sharia law being the dream for all nations to follow. That's what Muslims believe. So it's it's fascinating to me that Islam would just ignore the the spiritual progress that Jesus did of transcending this need for a law and going back to a law, uh, which I believe Jesus lifted us away from um, that that hardship that the law brought to, to the Israelites. Well, I also find it strange that uh, Muhammad was so different from Jesus in regards to violence. Jesus' way was pacifism. You know, he taught us to turn the other cheek. He taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And when Jesus was attacked by his opponents, he didn't retaliate, but he, instead he allowed them to kill him on the cross. But Muhammad was the opposite he not only fought back with armies when he was attacked, he also led armies to attack his enemies and once again, this is similar to Judaism. This is what the Israelites did in the Old Testament, but Jesus came to establish a new way of peace and nonviolence that Muhammad didn't continue so I, I I just I, I don't I don't know how to reconcile um how Islam can say that they're a successor to Christianity when really, they're more a successor to Judaism and they've skipped over all the main parts of Christianity. That's, that's my understanding. Uh, But of course, I do also have to qualify that though, by saying Christians in many ways, weren't any better than the Muslims in this regard, as they also left Jesus' teaching of nonviolence and they repeatedly went to war with the Muslims, especially with the Crusades in, uh, you know, the 11th century and on. It was a real Uh, bloodbath, and mess, and that was not what I believe Jesus intended the church to engage with other faiths in that way, but that's the way Christians went, and uh, yeah, what do we do with that? Well, another thing that uh, comes to my mind as I've been studying Islam is there's something about the peace, though, that's taught in Islam nowadays that really intrigues me. Since 9-11, Muslim scholars and advocates have worked really hard to demonstrate to the world that Islam is a religion of peace and that these acts of terrorism came really from a fringe group of Muslims. And in my personal experience with Muslims, I have experienced great love and hospitality and peace. When I lived in New Zealand, our neighbors were Muslim and they would often give us food at random times. We wouldn't even ask for it. They would just bring it over and they would invite us into their home, and they would share conversations with us. And Even though they knew that we were Christians, and they knew that I was a pastor, they still engaged in these loving, hospitable conversations with us. There was no sense that they were trying to convert us or to pick a fight with us. They just showed us love, warmth, and peace. Also, at our church, we ran a daycare, and many of the families with kids there were Muslim, and many of them Sorry, all of them. I don't know why I said many of them. All of them were gracious and kind people. I loved interacting with all the different Muslim families that came to our daycare. I experienced no hostility, no animosity from any of the Muslims in our community. And while we were in New Zealand, uh, there was that terrible mass shooting that uh, a white supremacist killed 51 people and he injured 40 others in two different mosques in Christchurch. And this was... The worst attack that New Zealand had ever experienced. And to this day, it's a tremendous, terrible. This is their 9-11, really, uh, which is weird because it wasn't a nation. It was a white supremacist and a racist attacking uh, the Islamic faith. Well, you might have expected because of the politically charged nature of what's going on these days that you might you might have expected the New New Zealand uh, Muslims to respond with anger and with violence towards, you know, the many white Christians who are in power in New Zealand. But that's not at all what happened. For the most part, the Muslims responded with words of hope, words of peace. Obviously, lots of grief and despair and and uh, just heart-wrenching uh, emotions. But there's also messages of hope and peace that came from the Muslim community during this time. There were even these amazing stories of Muslims who were offering peace and forgiveness to the shooter. Farid Ahmed, whose wife Husna, was killed in the Al-Nur Mosque. And he said after these attacks, so he was actually there. He's in a wheelchair and his wife went back into the mosque to get him and she was shot in the back. And Farid said this, I don't want to have a heart that is boiling like a volcano. A volcano has anger, fury, rage. It doesn't have peace. It has hatred. It burns itself within and it burns the surroundings. Ahmed explained why he had chosen to forgive the shooter. I want a heart that is full of love and care and full of mercy. A heart that will forgive lavishly some christian songs have lyrics just like that also beside farid there in the picture is jana Azat, whose son hussein al-umari was murdered also at that same mosque she was at the trial with the gunman and she forgave him to his face saying to him i decided to forgive you mr tarrant because i don't have hate i don't have revenge In our Muslim faith, we say we are able to forgive, forgive. I forgive you. Damage was done, and Hussein will never be here. So I only have one choice to forgive you. Tarrant nodded in acknowledgement of her words before blinking profusely and wiping one of his eyes. It was actually his only show of emotion during the trial. Well, these amazing responses of grace to such horrendous evil are the heart of Christianity. Jesus lived this message of grace. He breathed this message of forgiveness and he died this message of sacrificial love. So to see Muslims walking in the way of Jesus is inspiring to me and it's hopeful to me. Okay, so that's all for This sermon on Islam, I hope it's been informative and thought-provoking for you. I'm going to leave you now with a couple questions to consider. First, what are your thoughts on religion and politics? How closely should the two be linked? What are the blessings and curses when they are in close relationship? And second, for you Christians that are listening, do you think that God's going to welcome some Muslims into heaven? You know, Muslims claim to worship the same God as us, although they don't believe Jesus was God. They still believe the same one God from Judaism and Christianity. And when we look at Muslims like Farid and Jana here who desire to walk in the way of forgiveness, which really is the way of Jesus, do you think that God's going to show them grace? Well, some questions to ponder. I hope that you're having a great weekend and blessings and peace upon you all. Bye.